Last Sunday, we looked at the second portion of what I call Paul's fiery response to the Corinthians' ungodly complacency toward an unrepentant, sexually immoral man in their church that was defiling himself and the church. And uh, he basically commanded the Corinthians to, to judge and purge, and purge means to excommunicate the evil person from among them at once, 1 Corinthians 5, 12, and 13. He commanded that they deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 5, 5. All of that is removal language. Have him removed from the congregation since he won't repent of this sexual immorality. Turn him over to Satan. Let Satan pulverize him for a while and maybe he'll come to his senses. That's the idea there. And so we looked at, the, at, at basically an entire section based on that. And we kind of wrapped up, the, I guess, the second part of it last Sunday. In the next section, Paul takes a moment to correct another carnal behavior in the church. You know, he really doesn't deviate away from the subject of sexual immorality. It's, it's kind of in the same thread of thought, but it is a subject that seems different. Uh, but in the context, we're still under the banner of sexual immorality. That's what he's dealing with. And he goes after another subject here because as he was correcting them on the sexual immorality, he's reminded of something else they're doing. And um, he takes a moment just to correct this. <clears throat> and what it was was the Corinthians were pursuing judgments against each other. And very sadly, they were doing it in a public setting. Um, they... They were basically using the pagan courts to settle their disputes. They were filing lawsuits against one another, other church members. And uh, just, just so you can understand just the context a little bit more, I want to give you some history and background to this matter. Uh, firstly, for centuries, Jews had settled all their disputes, either privately or in a synagogue court. Okay, so, so the Jewish people who were closely linked to the early Christians, in fact, the Romans thought of Christianity as just another type of Judaism. Uh, but for the Jewish people, they just refused to take any of their civil uh, legal matters to any sort of pagan courts. They wouldn't do it. And it wasn't because they were worried about being defiled by Gentiles or any of that. It was because they didn't want to create a false perception. They didn't want people to think that their God and their scripture were incapable of settling their disputes. And so they were very, very cautious in how they represented themselves and in what they did in the public eye. They just didn't want pagan people to think, look, the Jewish people are no different than anyone else because here they are suing each other just like us. So they were very, very cautious. And I think that that idea that behavior is grounded in scripture and it should be the same for us Christians. We should think of it in the same way as the ancient Jewish people did. Now during the Roman occupation, we're thinking of the first century, the Jewish judicial system, the system that was in place, the Romans actually kept it in place. They allowed the Jews to continue to settle their disputes and matters between themselves or maybe at the Sanhedrin. I don't think the Romans really wanted to get entangled in their civil 
you know, liabilities and lawsuits. And so they allowed the Jews to keep their judicial system in place. But they did have a stipulation. The Jews were not per... They were actually prohibited or not permitted to render any sort of capital punishments. The Jews on their own could not sentence some person to death. They did not have the permission to do that. They could do everything else, but they couldn't do that. And this is why the Sanhedrin was really essentially, and we don't think of it this way, but it was forced in a sense to present Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, because he's the only one in the territory that had the legal authority to sentence anyone to death and to carry out a death sentence. So the Jews were shackled or handcuffed in a way. They could settle all sorts of disputes, even criminal matters and legal things, but they could not do capital punishment. So they had to go to the governor, and that's what we see happening with Jesus. Now, if you want to get an idea of what the legal situation uh, was like in Corinth during this time, it was very similar to that of Athens, um, where litigation was really a part of everyday life, right? I'm, I'm sure they had their version of the people's court with, with Judge Wapner well before any of us did. Um, Judge Judy, right? You know, that's the stuff that people like to watch on daytime TV. I don't, I don't know what the fixation is there. I've, I've watched it a few times. It's really dumb to me. It seems very fake and, and staged. But that was the legal idea in Athens. It was a very litigation-forward culture and community. Um, it had become kind of a form of challenge to, to sue one another and even a form of entertainment. And that's where the Wapner and the Judge Judy comes in here. So we're very similar to how it was in Athens. Uh, one ancient writer claimed that, and kind of in a matter of speaking, that every Athenian was a litigator. Every regular citizen of Athens was a lawyer in a sense because that's how pervasive and prevalent lawsuits were. Everybody was suing each other in Athens. When a problem arose between two parties that could not be settled, the first step was private arbitration. Uh, each party was assigned a disinterested private citizen as an arbitrator. And the two arbitrators, along with a neutral third person, would attempt to settle that dispute between those two disputers. If they failed, the case was turned over to the court of 40, who assigned a public arbitrator to each party. Interestingly, every citizen had to serve as a public arbitrator during the 60th year of his or her life. That sounds a lot like jury duty here. Oh, joy, who's done it? I have. I was actually picked as the lead juror in one one time, and I thought it was such a badge of honor, then I realized it was probably a death threat because it was a gang-related case, and I was the star. <laughs> and the last thing you want to do is be the star juror with a bunch of gangbangers staring at you. And they're asking you your personal information. And one gal sitting next to me, like when they were picking jurors, in front of everyone, including the criminal, is giving every explicit detail about her life. Well, I live at 1461 Rose Avenue. I'm sitting there going, this woman is dumb. Her house is going to get shot up. I was just like, my name's Phil. I love Jesus. You're the juror. You're the head guy. You love Jesus. We know you'll crucify this sucker. You know, that's the way they looked at it. But in any case, every Athenian, when they hit 60, was they had to do this. Now, you have to do it here. Once you hit 18, I think, most of us have done it. 
So it's an interesting dynamic there. Um, I think that's probably where the idea, our idea of jury duty comes from, from the Greeks, because they, they did a lot of stuff that, that has just carried over through the centuries. Really what I'm telling you is that the Corinthians, who were essentially Greeks, were so accustomed to arguing, disputing, taking one another to court before they were saved, because that was the normal thing to do, they just carried these carnal attitudes and behaviors and practices right over into the church. That's what happened. They didn't leave that part behind. They, they brought that part of their culture right into the church. And, and now what Paul, when Paul gets a report, he finds out that they're doing just like the culture. They're suing each other. They're getting the arbitrators. They're getting the, the, the juries of 40. They're doing all this stuff to settle their in-house disputes. And uh, it's just such a disgrace, according to Paul, what they were doing. To, to sue, for Christians to sue one another in pagan courts or secular courts, it is to bring reproach upon the church. And worse than that, it is to bring reproach upon the head of the church. Okay? Who's Jesus Christ. So, so that's what Paul deals with in, in the rest of, of, or well, really, in all of, of chapter 6, or at least the first 13 or 11 verses of it. Um, and that's what we're going to be focusing on, but we're not going to be able to tackle all of it today because there's just so much content. So take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're just going to focus on verses 1 to 8. This will be a, a three-point sermon. We'll look at points 1 and 2 today, which is one, verses 1 through 8, and then next week we'll look at the last point, point 3, which is really, really interesting. That third point, I mean, not that the others aren't, but that third one is it almost seems disjointed from the rest of the text, but it is not. And, and when you hear, when you hear the explanation or the exposition of the text and why Paul says what he says, if you want to, just look at it. Look at 9 to 11 right now. It seems disjointed, but when you find out why Paul says what he says there, it'll make total sense to you. Now, we'll save that for next week. I want to pray before we get to work. Lord, thanks for this morning and for the, for the bit of decent weather that we have now, we are thankful for the rain, and, and, which is something the Central Valley needs desperately. It's like a desert here. So we thank you for that and the rain that you'll give us. Uh, we pray that you somehow sustain our roof here at this place because this building's got some leaks. And as we can see evidence of that this morning, so we just pray that uh, as we reach out to the landlord, he'd get somebody out here to fix that. But more, more importantly now, Lord, we just pray... Uh, that you'd humble us and speak to us through your word and that it wouldn't just be the word or just words that we hear or just a sermon or that we would even reduce it down to some kind of speech or TED talk or lecture, that we would hear your voice speaking to us through your word and that we would obey it. And so teach us this morning really for how to settle disputes between one another. That's really the main thing that's going on here. And so we humble ourselves and ask that you teach and train and sanctify us and that you are glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> so I'm going to pick up where we left off last week, <coughs> crossing over into chapter 6. We're going to look at our first point, and it is very simple. It is the absurdity of believers taking each other to court, verses 1 to 4. 
what Paul wants to establish in these first four verses, the, he wants to establish the absolute absurdity or ridiculousness or foolishness, or I might even go out and say stupidity of Christians suing Christians in secular courts. His entire point, really in the whole text, but right here in these four verses has to do with that. It's absolute absurdity for us to even consider something like this. Verse 1, <clears throat> listen to what he says. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Stop right there. So with this subject, and here's where there's a contextual bridge did Paul not just talk about in the previous section about judgment and about Christians rendering judgments and what appropriate judgment looks like? So think of what he's saying here. This is not disjointed. He just got done talking about how Christians are to judge matters within the church, not outside of the church, because unbelievers, outsiders, pagans, secular folks are not under our jurisdiction. Not yet. They will be when Christ comes back. So think of what Paul has been saying in chapter 5. He has told them what proper judgment looks like, and now he's swinging right into an example of it. And it's their poor example, by the way, that he's exposing. So think of the way that they're hearing this as it's read aloud. The subject of judgment is still ringing in their ears. And now Paul begins by asking a rhetorical question that was meant to illustrate the absolute absurdity of Christians suing Christians. He is, in a sense, saying, if a grievance arose between brothers, who of you would dare take it before unrighteous civil magistrates rather than settle it among the saints in the church? Who of you would be absurd or foolish enough to do or to endeavor such a task? Who would do that? Now, he knows because he's received a report that somebody's been doing it. But he's just simply asking them the rhetorical to expose the foolishness. Uh, I can't even think of anyone that I know who would do something so stupid. Who of you would do something so stupid? So this has a bite to it, this question. It has a bite to it because it's exposing what they're doing. And the answer should have been what? Absolutely none of us. None of us, none of us would even dare to take our matters to legal, to the law, you know, to the laws of the land and to the legal magistrates of the land. That should have been their answer. And at some churches, that would have been the answer. But unfortunately, not at this one. And, you know, some commentators speculate that Paul's main concern here is that if they were to, you know, it's okay to utilize secular courts as Christians, even against other Christians. You know, sometimes you have to do that because that Christian won't repent and, and won't do what they're supposed to do. So you have to teach them a lesson and drag them through the muddy courts. Some commentators think that that's what Paul is hinting at here. You know, his, con his concern isn't that. It's, you know, his concern is that, well, I, I, I think it's unwise for you to do this because in secular courts, you might not get a fair hearing. That is not what Paul is concerned about at all. He doesn't care. In fact, his expectation is, because the world was so toxic against Christians in the first century, his expectation is, is that no Christian would ever get a fair hearing or a fair trial in any court in that time. So that is not his concern. It's not like, hey, don't sue each other because you won't get a fair hearing. That is not what he's saying. 
I don't even know why some commentators write commentaries if that's the kind of nonsense they're writing. He doesn't care about that. <clears throat> what he's concerned about here is that by taking their brothers and sisters to pagan secular courts, they show that they have very little, if any at all, respect for the church's authority and ability to settle its own disputes. You're depending on secular courts, which are outside of the church. And if you stop and think about it, the church is the highest entity in the land, authoritatively speaking, right? The church is because it is the church of Christ and Christ is the king and the head of the church. So you're going to a lower level with some level of ignorance saying that the church just doesn't have the authority or ability to settle. That's his concern. His concern is perception. How will the culture see what you're doing? Oh, what it sees is that, look, these Christians are no different than any of us. And so they can't settle their own matters. They can't deal with their own disputes. Their Bible isn't sufficient. Their God is a joke. That's Paul's concern. It's perceptions. And he's concerned about their ignorance because they clearly don't understand that they have everything they need to deal with these disputes. He was concerned for the reputation of the church and ultimately for the name of Christ in Corinth. Thomas Schreiner is a good commentator. He said, it was scandalous. He uses the word scandalous. We never hear that word anymore, but it really carries and denotes the ugliness of this. It was scandalous that the Corinthians, when they had disputes with one another, took their cases, took the cases to secular courts. The Greco-Roman courts were well known for their own corruption and for favoring people with higher statuses. So I, he puts an even different spin on it. It's scandalous, not only because you're supposed to settle your own matters in the church, but because you're taking your matter to the most corrupt organization out there. All you had to do to win a civil case in a Roman court was have more money than the other guy. Kind of sounds like America. That's all you had to have was more resource to win a better attorney or pay off a judge. So it was a scandalous thing they were endeavoring the fact is the resources of truth, wisdom, equity, justice, love, kindness, generosity, and understanding, they all reside in Scripture, not in secular culture. Secular culture, do you know what it has to offer us? Nothing. Do you know what this has to offer us? Everything we need. Everything, including Everything we need, all the wisdom, all the compelling, all the command, all the exhortation to settle our own disputes. We don't have to go outside of Scripture for anything as Christians. And yet, what are these people doing? Going outside to settle their civil matters. It's just scandalous. We have received all things pertaining to life and godliness through him, that's God, who called us by his divine power, 2 Peter 1, 3. Do not forget that verse. We have everything we need. God has supplied all that we need, especially when it comes to settling our disputes. We have everything that we need to keep unity, to keep peace, everything. MacArthur writes, Christians are not to take other Christians to worldly courts. When we put ourselves under the authority of the world in this way, we confess that we do not have right actions or right attitudes. 
Believers who go to court with believers are more concerned with revenge or gain than with unity of the body and the glory of Jesus Christ. Disputes between Christians should be settled by and among Christians. If we as Christians with our wonderful gifts and resources in Christ cannot settle a dispute, how can we expect unbelievers to do it? I mean, if we who have the truth, everything we need, not just for salvation, but for life and for peace and for unity, if we can't figure it out, we're expecting a secular court that is not regenerated, that does not have the Lord, that does not have grace, that does not have wisdom, that does not have life, we're expecting them to figure it out? That's MacArthur's point. Verse 2, Paul continues, we're still under the same idea here of the absurdity. Or do you not, listen to this, oh my goodness, when I read this I felt so stupid. Listen to what he says, or do you not know that the saints will actually judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? This is a sledgehammer blow. This is hitting them over the head. He's nailing them here. To further illustrate the absurdity of Christian-to-Christian -Christian lawsuits, Paul describes the, the judicial authority and jurisdiction Believers have now, in a sense, and will be given in the future. Right now, our, our, I would say we possess a, a limited authority, a limited jurisdiction in a sense. Right now, we do. We still have some authority to judge matters. We have the Word of God, which is the authority of God, and our judgment is narrowed and focused within the church. That's where it stays. So it's limited in its scope. Our jurisdiction is limited to the church. So the scope of our jurisdiction is also limited. But that's not how it will be in the future. Right now, it's believer to believer matters only. Those are the things that we are to judge, right? That's what he said in chapter 5, verse 12. And since our judgments begin with God's household, it makes total sense that that would be our focus until Christ comes back. 1 Peter 4, 17. But when he returns to consummate his kingdom, believers from throughout all history will be his co-regents. That means co-judges seated with him on his throne, Revelation 3.21. I don't know if that's a really big throne or what that's going to look like, but somehow it says in that text that we are seated with him to judge. Part of our responsibility at that point as co-rulers or co-regents with Christ will be to do exactly what Paul says here, judge the world, to judge the world. Now, what are the clearest Old Testament references to believer's role, to a believer's role in judging the world at the final judgment? Because that's what Paul's talking about. It's actually found in Daniel's vision of the Son of Man. Daniel 7.22 reads, And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So now we're talking about the return of Christ and the Most High God handing over judgment to his son. He's the primary judge with the capital J. And to his co-regents, all his people, lowercase j, judges. We receive the kingdom of Christ. And I am convinced that it is not for a thousand years. It's forever and ever and ever. And at that point, we become judges over the nations. That's what is to take place. And we know... 
that the apostles themselves will have some kind of special authority because they will be ruling from 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, Matthew 19, 28. But it's important for us to understand, and this is what Paul is trying to convey to these people who are letting these knuckleheads settle their disputes, every believer will participate in judging the world in some way, shape, or form. Don't ask me what it looks like. I have no idea. I just know that it's in the scripture and it's true. <coughs> Here's another great text. Revelation chapter 2, 26 to 27a. It says, The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Ruling with a rod of iron is not like going around like some kind of little K king ruling over individual nations. At this point, the nations have been literally obliterated and there's one kingdom of Christ. To rule over the nations with a rod means to judge them with supreme authority. That's what it means. Picture with me a throne where, where we are seated with Christ at this juncture and, 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 and people from every tribe and tongue who are outside of the fold of Christ are now, and we have these rods of judgment and we are placing judgment over them. We are rendering judgment over them with Christ. That's the picture in Daniel 7. That's the picture in Revelation. Paul's logic is really simple here. If the saints will one day help rule and judge the whole world, they should be competent enough to try and settle trivial cases within the church, right? That's his logic. You're going to pagan courts. Do you not understand that one day when Christ comes back, you will rule over pagan courts with a rod of iron and be their judges? And you can't settle your little disputes. Well, Susie took something from me. What are we talking about? Do you see the absurdity of what they're doing? We should feel the sting of this if we have disputes with our brothers and sisters. And maybe we're not absurd or foolish enough to take it outside of the church, but maybe we've been thinking about that. Don't do it. Verses 3 to 4. Uh, and, and this is like where you have an open wound, and he comes up with a huge container of Norton salt and empties it in the wound, right? Listen to what he says here. He's just adding insult to injury, and they deserve it. Verses 3 and 4, okay, I gave you the example of ruling over the world. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life, exclamation point. And then he says this, he's trying to reason. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Oh, my goodness. Well, what we're actually seeing is a pattern here. Um, Paul was using the Latin phrase argumentum uh, fortiori, which literally means in Latin arguing from greater to lesser. He's using a Latin strategy here that was used in arguing court cases. <laughs> He's using the legal, the legal mode or tools of that day because he knows they're going to understand this. Now, just think about the order here. Judging the world is, is, is a pretty great matter. Judging angels is less great than judging the entire world. Judging the church is least great of these ways of judgment, from greater to lesser. So that's what he's arguing. That's the mode he's using. 
What did Paul mean by judging angels? Because that is perplexing to me. What on earth could he mean? Well, I think he was pulling from Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. It says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, and this sounds to me like at the Tower of Babel when that fell. It says, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So in this particular text, it, it seems to indicate that God had for a period of time, given jurisdiction of the pagan nations to a ruling class of angels. That's what it sounds like. And in the Old Testament, they're usually referred to as the sons of God. They're not literal sons of God. There's one son of God, and that's Christ, the begotten son of God. But since angels are supernaturally created beings and supernatural beings, not divine but created, they are referred to in the Old Testament as sons of God. And so... The idea here is that you have this ruling class of angels, like higher than normal angels that, that were put in districts over the nations. And this could be what's being said here. And I think that's what Paul might be pointing to. It seems like God gave this jurisdiction to this ruling class of angels. And that's what it says in the Old Testament. Now, in Psalm chapter 82, verses 6 to 7, it says that God pronounced condemnation on these ruling angels because instead of doing their job, they rebelled and engaged in all sorts of injustices. We might now be referring to the fall of the angelic, the, of the angels. I don't know. I, I think that that happened probably before the nations, but we don't know. We don't have a, an accurate chronology in scripture. Uh, but somehow, maybe, here, these angels will oversee nations and then they rebel in a sense and commit injustices and then God condemns them for it. And that seems to be what is being said in Psalm 82, 6 to 7. Here's what it says. This is God pronouncing this judgment. I said you are gods, lowercase g, not literal divine enti entities, but created by God and of high authority. I said you are gods, sons of the most high. There's the idea of angel. All of you. It's like he's pronouncing judgment on all this ruling class. And he says, nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any human prince. So you have the idea of a ruling class of angels who blow it and then God condemns them and speaks to them as if they were men. Angels are higher than men, but God is saying, I'm going to destroy you just like I destroy wicked men. Now, part of God's redemptive plan is to overthrow these demonic kingdoms and all of the, what we're looking at here and to replace them with the kingdom of his son with believers ruling as co-heirs, right? We know that this is part of God's redemptive plan and we see this happen at the return of Christ. 2 Tim 2.13, Revelation 2.25-28. Now, I'm going to cite something from a guy whom I like some of the things that he says, but I don't care for some of the other things that he says. Right? He has good things that he has said, and then he's got things that are like, eh, I don't know. But this is from a book that I began to read called The Unseen Realm, and it's written by a guy named Doc, Dr. Michael Heiser. This guy has spent, he, he wrote his doctrinal thesis on the angelic realm. It's all he talks about. All he talks about is angels and demons and the Nephilim and the sons of God and the ruling class of angels and the eternal council. It's all he talks about. He never talks about anything else. I'm like, tell me a little bit about Calvinism. He's like, I don't talk about that. He only talks about these issues. So it's kind of fascinating, 
But when you read his stuff, you're like, I've never heard any of this, and it sounds almost apostate. But I don't think that some of it is. And this is what he suggests here. This is a direct quote from that book. <clears throat> Once the nations are restored to Yahweh through the gospel, now I would disagree with him on that. They will be restored to Yahweh, but not through the gospel. They will re be restored through the authority and warfare of the king, right? Jesus will come back and he's going to kick some rear. So I, I disagree there. This almost sounds like... Um, uh, post-millennialism where the gospel just takes over the world and converts the whole world and then Christ comes back. He might be a post-millennialist. But in any case, he's right about the nations being restored to Yahweh. Once the nations are restored to Yahweh through the gospel, I say through war, believers will displace the divine beings who presently dominate the nations and rule in their place as Yahweh's children and co-rulers. I do agree with that statement. I just think that the means by which the nations are subdued is through a rod of iron, not through evangelism. So I think he's right there in a sense. Now, if this is what Paul had in mind here, then it really elucidates the tragic irony in the behavior of the Corinthians, doesn't it? It does. I mean, it just goes to show the absurdity. You're going to rule over, you're going to judge the nations, every unbeliever. And not only that, but you are going to execute judgment as a co-ruler with Christ over these ruling class of angels. Your authority as judges is higher than anything in the world and really higher than anything in the cosmos or anything in the invisible realm with the exception of the Godhead. This is what he is saying to them. Now think about how absurd it is for them to go to pagan courts to have their matters settled. That's the point. Does, is Paul a genius or what? It's not Paul. It's the Holy Spirit working through him. That is his point. That is his logic. It is so absurd for them to take their matters to secular courts that Paul hits them with an embarrassing rhetorical question at the end there at verse 4. He says, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? <laughs> why would you take them to people who don't really have authority or have wisdom or have what it takes to deal with our in-church matters? Why would you do that? You are a co-regent. Why would you do such a foolish, absurd thing? That's the point. So, absurdity of the matter are you getting it? Are you hearing what God is saying through his word? Do not take your civil disputes with your brothers and sisters to secular courts. You're better than that. When you do that, you lower yourself. You lower yourself and place yourself under the authority of those who have no authority in or over the church. Let's move to the second point. Number two, appoint an internal arbiter to settle your disputes. Very simple. This is represented in the rest of our text for today, verses 5 to 8. <coughs> Pardon me. We'll pick it up in verse 5. Listen to what he says. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? Wow. The Corinthians should have been able to adjudicate such disputes, since they will judge the world, judge angels, 
since they have the scriptures which give them all that they need to do anything and to settle every matter. And then also, almost most of all, because they really did claim to be wise. You remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18? We are the wise ones. Well, if you're so wise, how come you can't settle little disputes between each other? That's Paul's point. He is aiming to and firing every barrel he's got here to deflate their egos and to get them to feel some level of shame for being so utterly ridiculous by dragging the name of Jesus through the mud of the pagan judicial system. Paul asks another rhetorical question, and this one is highly sarcastic. It was as if he's saying, surely as co-regents and with all this great wisdom that you profess, there's got to be at least one person in your congregation who's wise enough to settle your disputes. You got to have at least one person. Tell me you've at least got one Bruce in your church, one veteran saint, one godly man who can sit down and say, hey, brother, hey, brother, what on earth is going on? One Bob Ross, that was Mike Boyd. He was like the gentle little, let's paint some settling of the disputes. <laughs> I miss him. I loved when he used to counsel me because it was, it, it just, it, you know, it just made me feel good and warm like Mr. Rogers. But this is, this is it. He just hammers them here. He just blasts them here with this rhetorical. You got to have somebody there. You even claim to be wise. <coughs> but... This rhetorical question is not just meant for sarcasm and to shame and to embarrass, which is what they need. It may seem harsh, but they need it because look what they're doing. It is not just for that purpose. It's also instructional. It's also instructional. Paul is not merely mocking them here for their absurdity. He's actually guiding them toward the goal, which is to have or to appoint some or at least one internal arbiter who can settle their disputes so that what? Verse 6, brothers don't have to go to law against brothers, which is ultimately before unbelievers. So if, if you, church, can heed my admonition, and I know I've been hard on you, but I need to be hard on you because you're embarrassing yourselves, Christ, and the church by going to court. You don't do this. If you can heed my warning, here's what I want you to do. I, want, I, I understand. See, Paul is compassionate. He understands that they have disputes. And he wants the dispute settled. He doesn't think the dispute should be there in the first place. And they shouldn't be. But he says you, what you need to do through his sarcasm is you need to appoint somebody who can fix it for you. You need to appoint somebody who can sit down and work with both of you or whoever it is that has these disputes and work through the information and be a careful listener that has wisdom, that has compassion, that's gentle, that wants to give instruction and can give you instruction. This is what he is literally teaching them here. Now, generally speaking, they should have already had arbiters because it's 10 times out of 10 the elders of a church that serve as the arbiters. The elders of a church are the ones that, you know, if you can't settle things between you and maybe you pull another brother or sister in and it just, you can't settle it because somebody's being stubborn, then maybe you got to go to the arbiters, which are typically the elders. It's a mistake to think that elders are just preacher teachers and prayer guys. They're not. They are problem solvers. They're dispute settlers. And this is one reason why they must be sober-minded. 1 Tim 3.2. If an elder isn't sober-minded, if he doesn't think clearly, 
how is he going to be able to think through someone's mess and help them settle it? To be sober-minded is to be clear-headed. It is to be rational. It is to be logical. It is to be biblical. When an elder listens to a case, he has to be able to figure out if somebody's right, if somebody's wrong, and then he has to be able to give gentle, loving correction and then give instruction and solution. Like not just say, you know, Billy, you're wrong, Sally's right, now, you know, shake her hand and tell her you're sorry. I mean, there might be some process of reconciliation. There might be something that needs to be restored. He has to be able to listen and apply these things. <coughs> I would just say that, and I've learned this from experience, you know, when you become an elder, you have some experience. You have to be meet some criteria, but, you know, you, maybe you haven't settled a lot of disputes between saints, and as you grow in your eldership, you kind of learn how to do that. In the first few ones, you really help nobody. People end up leaving mad, and now you have a dispute with two people. So it takes some time to learn how to do this, but settling disputes does require wisdom. It does require skill, and I would say, firstly, Jesus is the greatest example of any of that, always. But you know who was a runner-up was Solomon. Dude was bad to the bone on settling disputes, seriously. Uh, there were two female roommates uh, disputing over a baby. Uh, both were moms, but one accidentally killed her baby in the middle of the night by rolling over it and suffocating it during sleep. And that is just tragic. And this is why you do not put your newborn in your bed. And she, what she did was when she realized that she had killed her child, is what she slipped into her roommate's room and swapped babies and gave the roommate the dead baby and took the alive baby and claimed it was his. Now, you know that these babies were probably really, really young. Right, But you moms out there know when your baby is there and your baby isn't. You take one look at it and you give it one whiff. That's not my baby. And that's what's going on here. So this woman hatches a really disgusting plan and swaps out her dead baby for the alive baby. And then, of course, they go to war. They have a dispute. And both moms end up before the king. Because in ancient Israel, the king was the dispute settler. And um, yes, Solomon did not do well toward the end of his life, but maybe it was because he had to settle these things all the time. Right? It certainly doesn't help. Uh, but in any case, they find themselves before the king. And the king is very, very wise. The ultimate dispute settler in his day and age. In fact, people came from all over the world, the Queen of Sheba and others, just to get a taste of his wisdom, because this dude was bad to the bone. And it's primarily, not in primarily, it is entirely, because that's what he asked for when he became king. God, give me wisdom to rule over your people. I have no idea what to do here. And God said, I'll give you all the wisdom you'll ever need, and I'm going to give you riches because you asked for the right thing. This is the wisest man to ever live next to Christ himself. Knowing that one of the women was lying, because he had discernment skills, Solomon sought to flush out the liar by offering to go ahead and cut the baby in half and give each one a side. We'll just divide the baby. It's kind of gory what he offers, but he knew what he was doing. He knew that the honest mom would immediately forfeit and say, no, 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 it's okay. Let her keep the baby. He knew that's what the real mom would do because the real mom, the true mom, the honest mom, would want to preserve her baby's life. And he suspected that the lying mom wouldn't really give a darn. And that is exactly what happened as soon as he rendered this verdict. The honest mom cried out, oh, Lord, no. 
give her the living child and by no means put him to death. Don't do it. That's the mom who actually had the baby. She cries out to save the baby's life because that's what a honest, real mom would do. And what does the lying mom do? She exposes her treachery. She says, well, go ahead and split him in two. That way, neither of us will get him. That's a mother who is mourning and grieving, who just lost her child and who has got herself entangled in treachery. Solomon knew that's what would happen. It's exactly what happened. And right after both of those women made their pleas, the true mom saying, don't kill him. The other one saying, I don't even care. Solomon says, give the honest, real mother her baby back. And then nothing else is said. I would have followed it with, and give her life in prison for lying. But then again, Solomon was a nicer man than me because he knew and understood how desperate that woman was because she had killed her own baby. That's not something that you would want to live with. And so he even showed compassion by showing leniency. What am I telling you? What is the point? And this is all recorded in 1 Kings 3, 16 to 28. What's the point? The point is that Solomon was a master dispute settler because he had wisdom and discernment and those gifts. And, those are, and he was sober-minded. I'm describing to you what the elder must possess because he has to settle disputes. I am not going to, if two women are fighting over a baby, I'm not going to say, let's cut the baby in half and find out who's lying. You know, I'm going to defer to public health. I don't know what I would do. That would be an insane case. But what I'm saying is, and I'm joking, but what I'm saying is, is that the elder must be like Solomon. He has to listen and discern. He has to do something. We know the adage in the saying, to think on his feet. What does it mean to think on your feet? It means to reply or to respond to a situation without giving it any thought or pondering or training. It's something that befalls or comes your way and you are already gifted and talented and, and depending on the spirit. And, and if you can think on your feet, then you can respond in a way that honors God and is helpful without going away and finding a bunch of resource and trying to figure out how to deal with the situation. That is a good thing. When you don't know what to do, you go to the scripture. You go to godly men and get wisdom. But an elder must be able to think on his feet as well. And look at what Solomon did in seconds. He had a reply that flushed out the liar and restored things the way they should be. That is an example of being sober-minded. The elder must be sober-minded. He is a problem solver. He is a dispute settler. And he derives his knowledge. He derives his wisdom. He derives his discernment. And he derives all of his dependency upon Scripture and the Holy Spirit so that he can be a master dispute settler because the goal at the end of the day is to settle the disputes and to restore the peace and unity of the body. Because every second of disunity and strife communicates to the world that we are no different from it and we lose our witness. That's how vital this is. The absence, now this is interesting, the absence of an arbiter in the Corinthian church seems to tell us that this church did not yet have elders, right? I mean, why do we have all these issues in this church? Where are the elders at this whole time? Why were they not dealing with the sexual immorality? Why were they not dealing with this dispute? Where were they at? But the thing is, is that we cannot confirm this theory because Paul's normal pattern was to appoint elders before he left the churches that he planted. Acts 14, 23. So when Paul planted a church, he stayed for a while and then would usually leave it because he wanted it to have some kind of leadership 
and governance in place. It is very important to do that. If not, you leave a preacher in place and then you end up with a popish kind of situation where everyone yields to the preacher. It is, you know, church governance according to scriptures, elders. His practice was to leave elders. And if he did not do that because of the threat or because of time or whatever, he instructed others like Titus to go ahead and do that. Titus chapter 1 verse 5, he tells Titus, go out and plant, uh, appoint elders in some of these churches. <coughs> so, or maybe, maybe it didn't have elders. Maybe it did have elders, but they were incompetent. I find that hard to believe. That's a weird theory. I find it hard to believe since Paul clearly laid out the qualifications in 1 Tim chapter 3, 1 to 7, and of course in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. He laid out so clearly the qualifications, I'm not exactly sure how anyone who is a serious student of the word could land at the wrong kinds of elders. I do not understand with every fiber in my being, with every cell in my body, how we end up with, in churches, even in our own community, with women elders. I can't get my mind around this. I can't. Because the pronouns in Timothy and Titus are all male. He, 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 his. I can't get my mind around it. So it is possible to have the wrong kinds of elders, to have no elders at all, or to have incompetent elders. But since this is early on and Paul gave the instructions and all of the what an elder should be, it's hard to believe that we had incompetent elders. Here is my theory. My theory is that I do think the Corinthian church had elders. I do. I think it had elders. I think by the time Paul left and went down to Ephesus after planting the church, he, he left some elders in place. I do think he did that because that was his pattern. And what I suspect is that they lacked maturity and experience because the church, by the time Paul writes this letter, is only 18 months old. He writes this letter on the 18-month birthday of this church. He left this church a few months earlier. So the church is probably less than a year and a half old, and he pulls from that congregation the best that he can find of the men there who seem to be the most mature, the most qualified, and he appoints maybe two, three, four as elders. I think that's what happened. And I believe this is exactly why Paul did this. I believe it's exactly why he warns Timothy a little later not to appoint new converts as elders. I believe the Apostle Paul had to learn that lesson from experience. I do. I don't think that he just, that was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he wrote out the qualifications right there. Obviously, he's under the inspiration as he writes 1 Timothy and in Titus. But I think that Paul was also one, just like us, a man who had to learn from experience. And I think what he did was he appointed some elders who weren't quite ripe enough on the tree. And they do, not, they do not deal with these sinful, wicked, carnal situations in Corinth right because they're too much like, you know, everyone else. I think that's what happened. I think he appointed recently converted men, and then he found out later from a distance, well, that's not a good thing to do. That doesn't pay dividends. That doesn't work out. But you really can't blame him because he wants to leave the church with some level of governance because he knows he's going to get back to this church, but he doesn't know when. 
So am I suggesting that Paul may have made a mistake? Absolutely. He was a man and a very great man, the best of men, but the best of men are still men. I think he kind of blew it here and he learned from that mistake and then later says, when we go to appoint elders, do not pick someone who's fresh off the conversion boat. Don't do it. Just wait a while. Wait for God to provide the man. I think that's what happened. And I absolutely do not condemn Paul for it. Like I said, he was a man. Um, but do not put my theory in the bank because it is at best a theory. I could be wrong. One thing is certain as we move to the next verse, the RHC elders and I need to make sure that we do not make this mistake by appointing men who are too new in the faith. Right? By God's grace, we've never appointed an unqualified man to our board. We never have. By his grace, we have not done that. And I would say this, and this is not a boast, and I'm not saying it from pride. And I do believe this to be true because I believe when you follow God's word to a T, the best always comes out of that. And I would say this, if we elders stick to the scripture, we never will appoint an unqualified man. Never. If we stick to the clear teachings of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, where it lays out what an elder is to be. So I think they had elders, but I don't think they were where they should have been, and that's why we've got a big mess. And Paul says, hey, be careful, don't do that again. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? Oh, man, I love this. Paul's trying to reason with the Corinthians. Now, he's already obliterated them. He sank the ship, right? I'm using some terms that James would understand, and that's never good when you're in the Navy, unless it's the enemy vessel. But he has sank their ship in a sense. He's blasted them. He's used sarcasm. And now he's trying to reason with them. And I think we would all agree, what is the goal of a lawsuit? It is to win, right? Who goes into a lawsuit hoping to lose? Well, I hope I get shellacked today. Nobody who's ever filed a lawsuit has ever thought like that. Maybe there's been a few out there, and they're really, really dumb. Nobody wants to lose. Why? Because losing a lawsuit is what? Costly, right? You end up getting deducted whatever the lawsuit was for, and you end up paying the other person's legal fees and all that. It's a disaster. Nobody ever enters into litigation like this in some civil matter where you're trying to get some kind of monetary compensation. Nobody goes into it with the mindset of losing. But what Paul is now saying is that it really doesn't matter if you win in court because at the end of the day, as Christians, you have lost. I don't care if you win a million dollars from your brother. You lost because you should have never went to court to begin with. It doesn't matter if you win, you lose. Christ loses. The church loses. The body that you're part of loses. You lose because you should have never been there to begin with. Is this not what he said? You're not supposed to sue each other. Chapter 6, verse 1. It's shameful. Chapter 6, verse 5. So even though you win in court, you lose. You just reamed a brother or sister. And you feel good about that? You ought to be ashamed. Yeah, but they defrauded me. Who cares? Who cares if they defrauded you? What's more important? The love between you and that brother and the peace and the unity that you have with that brother or sister? Or winning in court? If you think it's winning in court, you act like you don't even know Christ. 
What's important is that you maintain at all costs the bond of peace and love and harmony, even when a brother is acting adversarially against you. That's the key. That's what it means to die to self. When we die to ourselves, we're not just dying to the world around us and to the persecutors. We are dying even in a sense to those brothers and sisters who are not mature and who take advantage of us. We are dying to our flesh in that regard because we are going to err on the side of love. We are going to err on the side of, 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 of holiness, of righteousness, of peace, of unity. And we are going to entrust what? Vengeance to who? Unto the Lord. He is the one that will settle our matters. That's the truth. When are we going to get this through our heads? No, 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 i got to settle this dispute. i got to win this argument. When you win the argument against your brother, your brother or sister, you lost. You lost. He's not the loser, even though he acted like a loser to you. You lost. You lost. That's how serious this is. And when I read this, I was devastated because I have been one who's always wanted to win every dispute, every argument, always. And to my own shame, I've won arguments. The things that we're dealing with here are not worth dividing over. Never. Even if it's some, something that we've held dear to ourselves that's been taken from us. We are people of vengeance. We are people of so much self-value that we cannot conceive of being mistreated. When we are called to do the exact opposite, obliterate our flesh and die to ourselves. No, we want vengeance. That's what lawsuits are. They're nothing more than vengeance. Schreiner says the believers were looking for a victory in court, but Paul informs them that the very presence of lawsuits signals a stunning defeat. Amen. Paul is asking here, wouldn't it be better for you to suffer wrong and be defrauded than to go to court? It's a rhetorical, and the answer is yes. Since Jesus suffered wrong and was defrauded, shouldn't his people be okay with experiencing the same mistreatment? Hmm? When this happens, what happens when we are defrauded and we, and we just choose to err on the side of grace and mercy and love? Well, ultimately what happens when we're defrauded, as Christ was defrauded, is that we are becoming more like him. Did Christ not suffer? Sometimes our suffering looks like being defrauded from our very brothers and sisters. And we want vengeance when that's part of our sanctification. That's part of how we are conformed to the image of the one who suffered and was defrauded. Isn't that the goal? Yes, our goal is to suffer and to become like Christ. Because apart from suffering, you cannot become like Christ. And the goal is to become like Christ. And Christ employs every measure to make us like him. Suffering, being defrauded, being ripped off, being stolen from, being hurt, suffering illness, suffering prostate cancer, suffering the flu. Everything is employed by a very creative God who has our best interest in mind. And we want to flee from all those things through lawsuits, through everything else. The goal is suffering to make us like Christ. For those whom God 
foreknew, he also predestined to be what conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8, 29. We cannot be conformed to the image of God's son who suffered wrong and was defrauded apart from suffering and being defrauded. We must travel his path of difficulty. We must be like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress and face every conceivable trial and mistreatment, even at the hands of our own brothers and sisters at times. We must, in order to become like Christ, we must have to suffer like him. And taking people to court, especially our brothers and sisters, to avoid mistreatment is absolutely counterproductive. It's just counterproductive. It's not the way of Jesus. And what we do is we confound our own sanctification by trying to win. What we ought to do is be settled on the matter that God is sovereign. He's ordained this for my good. And I'll take the loss because Christ lost in this world. He's a winner now, but he lost in this world at the hands of wicked people. It is better to be a loser in the kingdom than a winner. The last will be first. And the first will be last. Get this through your head, Pastor Phil. Get this through your head, congregation. It is not the way of Jesus to win. It is the way of Jesus to humbly bow out and suffer. That is the way of Christ. That is the way. He laid down his life in the laying down of his life, John 10, 18, he is telling us to lay down our lives, not to take a stand, not to win lawsuits, not to win disputes. And yet we are hell-bent on keeping our lives comfortable, free of trouble, absent of all mistreatment. Most of the time we act like we don't even know Christ. We do. We act like we do not know him at all. I would say that life is precious. Yes, I agree with that sentiment. But is it more precious than Jesus? He's worth suffering for. He's worth dying for. And that is the cost, my friends, my family, of discipleship. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 27. It is far better to suffer losses and become like Christ than to win cases, stymie our own sanctification, ruin our witness in this depraved litigation-addicted world. That is what Paul is conveying here in verse 6. Verse, verse, verses 6 and 7. Verse 8. And he says, but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Man, Paul flips the script on these Sue-addicted, Sue-happy members of this church. By taking their own brothers to court, they prove to be incredibly, if not more evil than those brothers themselves. They become worse than the actual defrauder. Defrauding anyone, believe me, I'm not saying, hey, let's just rip each other off. Defrauding anyone, especially fellow believers, is wicked. It's sinful. It's wrong. It's evil. But the ripple effect that comes from lawsuits like this is far greater. 
than merely being ripped off. It's, they're much greater. The ripple is just staggering how far the devastation goes in a lawsuit like this compared to something between me and some other brother. Lawsuits subject the church to public scrutiny, which tarnishes the name of Christ and destroys our witness. Lawsuits put the church where it does not belong in secular courts, and it puts secular courts where they do not belong in the church. Lawsuits destroy the separation between church and state because they bring the state into the church. And that's the last thing we need is the state in the church. It has no authority over us. And then we invite it in through lawsuits and then it tells us what we must do. And most of the time it's telling us that we must violate our good Christian conscience. We can't sing in church. We can't attend church. We can't do all the things that these imbeciles in Sacramento said we couldn't do. This is what happens when you bring the church into the courts and the courts into the church. Let me give you some encouragement and exhortation as we begin to close up. <clears throat> the fastest way, and this is really the most effective and best way to settle disputes is to avoid them altogether by living right. What a concept. Be a good steward. Earn your own way. Learn from the ant which works tirelessly. The one who will not earn his own way is worse than an unbeliever. Is, according to the Old Testament, especially in Proverbs, a sluggard. You do not want to be a sluggard in the eyes of God. Earn your own way. Work hard as unto the Lord. Make your money. Don't borrow from one another. That is one of the number one causes of disputes. Do not borrow. That is unwise. If a brother or sister has a need, supply it freely without expecting any repayment. Do not say, you know what, I'll only charge you half a percent. You just lost. Give freely. Christ himself said it is better to give than to receive. If you are an employer, pay your workers better than pagans would pay them. And pay on time. This is how you avoid disputes. By living right in a way that honors God in accordance with your high calling. You pay good if you're an employer. You pay on time. You work hard. You give generously. You don't make loans. You're not a stinking loan shark. You're a brother or sister in the Lord. You're a loan guppy. I don't even know what that means. You just give you just give. And if you don't, if you can't give, you don't give. But maybe you give of your time and you network and you connect a needy brother or sister to one who has more provision than you. You work to help. The fastest way to settle disputes is to just not have them by living right. And, and you can broaden this out. It, it can be not over a loan or something ridiculous like that, but it can be theological disputes. Why are we choosing to cast pearls before swine? Don't argue the doctrine of election with anyone. Who cares? They're still elect even though they reject it. Take joy in that. I know you hate predestination, but you are predestined. I'll see you later. <laughs> Who cares? 
What are you, what are you, what are you, what are you trying to win? You don't win. Even if you silence a mocker, you lose because you're not supposed to engage a mocker. Engaging a mocker is foolish according to Proverbs. It's okay to lose because in the losing, you become like Christ. And one day, you will win at a level that is going to make people's heads spin when he comes. Wait for that. The second fastest way to settle disputes is forgive. Just forgive the person you have a problem with. Just forgive them. And I don't understand. I can't get my mind around why this is so hard for some Christians to do. I, I've never been able to get my mind around how a believer can enjoy and be blessed and profit exponentially from the forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus and they just can't bring their self to forgive others, especially brothers and sisters. That is probably the biggest expression of hypocrisy I'll ever see in my life. And I see it all the time. I can't figure out why. And I suspect that it's because the one who has been forgiven by Christ but refuses to forgive others has a way, way, way overly inflated view of their self. It's pride. Their own self-importance drowns out the conviction of the Holy Spirit and so many biblical commands to forgive. And let me tell you something right now. To be a forgiven saint and to act like a sinner who won't forgive, this is one of the most dangerous places in the entire world for a Christian to be. No joke. Because... If we are unwilling to forgive others, especially our brothers and sisters, we should not expect to be forgiven by God. Matthew 6, 12, that is the primary point of the Lord's Prayer. Spurgeon once said, if you refuse to forgive, you sign your own death warrant every time you read the Lord's Prayer. Every time. thinking he was being generous, Peter exclaimed, Lord, how many times should I forgive a brother when he sins against me? How about seven times, Lord? Because in the Jewish custom, it was three times. It was three strikes and you're out. So Peter says, I'll add four. Watch this, guys. How about seven times? Jesus is like, hits the thing. <laughs> Wrong answer, Peter. Jesus replies, no, not seven times. 77 times. And some translations say 7 times 70 or 70 times 7. Matthew 18, 21 to 22. What Jesus is essentially saying by giving this, up number, this number that is way higher than what Peter suggested, what he is saying is there is no limit to how many times you are to forgive a brother or sister who sins against you. No limit, no stipulation. So no, Peter, you're not being generous. You're being dumb. There's no limit. No limit. And, and Jesus doesn't say, well, for this category of offenses, you do three times. For this category of offenses, you do seven. For this category, he says there's no limit with no categories, which means 
it could possibly be even the most heinous thing. Now, there might be more than just forgiving the person just to saying, I forgive you. There might be a reconciliation process there. Sometimes there is, and Jesus isn't neglecting that. The point is that if you have been forgiven of your sin, you are directly commanded to forgive others of their sin. And the moment you refuse to do that, do not expect anything from Christ. I'll end with a rock-solid, encouraging quote from J-Mac. been quoting him quite a bit, actually. He said this, The right attitude of a Christian is to rather be wronged, to rather be defrauded, than to sue a fellow Christian. It is far better to lose financially than to lose spiritually. Even when we are clearly in the legal right, we do not have the moral and spiritual right to insist on our legal right in a public court. If the brother has wronged us in any way, our response should be to forgive him and to leave the outcome of the matter in God's hands. The Lord may give or take away. He is sovereign. His will and purpose is reflected in what we gain and in what we lose and in how we lose it. Therefore, we should gratefully accept whatever outcome there is.